Ready to get into God's word? All right, here we go. Let me start with a question. Would you consider yourself to be a person who, generally speaking, a person who is under authority or a person who, generally speaking, challenges authority? What kind of person do you think you are? And if you're, if you're a kid sitting with your parents, you don't need to answer, okay? Just keep it to yourself right now, because I, I recognize that's a bit awkward. But, but most of us, generally speaking, are either the kind of person who talks in under authority or, or the kind of person who uh, doesn't. And it's, a, it's an important question, because we look at society today, the reality is that we live at a time when authority is constantly being questioned. I think about parental authority and philosophies of parenting that are out there today that place uh, children at the center of the home. The child-centered approach is so completely unbiblical, and it, it, it undermines the authority of parents. Uh, more than a few teachers who are in this room would tell you how the authority of the teacher in the classroom has just eroded over the past uh, several decades. And then they don't have the authority they once had, and, and students run roughshod over them. Government does not have the authority in its life, in our life, that it once had. And maybe, maybe that's their own fault. A police certainly are not respected, their authority not respected as it once was. And, and it's even laughable to give this last example because we don't even think about this being an authority in our lives because of the way society has gone. But the church, according to God's word, has authority in our lives. But that has been so challenged on a wholesale basis that people just don't believe that the church has any authority in their lives whatsoever. And so these are the very institutions. When we start talking about school and church and family and government and all of these things, I mean, these are the very institutions that form our society. And each of them faces increasing opposition to their authority simply because they're in authority. And most Bible teachers and theologians would be quick to tell you that a person who will not first submit to God will have a hard time submitting to the human institutions that he put in place to maintain the order, the institutions that he established for us in this world. In fact, our culture has so embraced this idea the autonomy of the individual, individual rights enshrined in who we are as a people and in our philosophy of governance. Really what we're saying is that each individual can say for themselves, I am my own authority. And we feel that it's our right and I'm all for democracy, and I love what democracy has given to us. I love the prosperity. I love the freedom of it. It's the best of all possible governments, human governments, that is. But we feel now, because we have these individual rights, we feel that it's actually our right to challenge authority. And it starts with challenging God. So in addition to believing I am my own authority, I also say, say, no one tells me what to do. Now, of course, that doesn't play well for God. It doesn't end well for us. Whether you're a believer or an unbeliever, it won't end well for you if that's your approach to living. And the reality is that every true Christian should submit him or herself to the authority of Jesus Christ, period, full stop. And there are some great benefits that come our way. That's the awesome thing about God. Do the things that he says to do. 
And then he rolls out this abundance of blessing in our life, pours out good things toward us. And that's what we're going to see in today's passage. Jesus is confronted in Luke 20 by a delegation that's come to him, a delegation of Jewish leaders who've come from the temple who want to know under whom, whose authority he's acting, the things that he's saying, the miracles that he's doing, the action that he's taken. Under whose authority are you doing these things? Because they were feeling in the moment that their own authority was being challenged by Jesus. And of course, we've been studying the gospel for a while now. They were absolutely right. He was challenging their authority. And so we're going to see in this text today what it looks like when I place myself under the authority of Christ as we see his encounter with these temple leaders. So let me I'll read the passage for us and then I'll pray. Uh, this is Luke 20, 1 to 8. One day as Jesus was teaching uh, the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and scribes with the elders came up and said to him, tell us by what authority you do these things and who it is that gave you this authority. And he answered them, I will ask you a question. You, now you tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Let's pray. Uh, Father, how you have been uh, kind to us again today. Uh, kind in allowing us to come to this place to be with these people who um, love you and love your word. Father, you've been kind to speak to us through your word and to receive our feeble and humble worship. And so, God, I pray in these moments that you would again speak to us. We need to hear from you. So, Father, convince, convince us and convict us of these truths here today. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen? Are you out there? Amen? All right. <laughs> when I place myself under the authority of Christ, here's what comes my way. First of all, hope comes my way. I will have hope because Jesus is the only one with good news. No one else has good news. Jesus has it for us, and, and he's delivering it, and, and he's delivering the good news brings us hope. If we were to define hope, I don't have a slide for this, but John Piper gives a nice, succinct little definition of it. He says, hope is a confident expectation and desire for good things in the future. A, 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 confident, a confident expectation and desire for good things in the future. In other words, I haven't laid my hands on them yet. They're still in the future for me, but I'm totally confident that this desire I have for something good is going to happen. That's what hope is. That's the thing that Jesus is, is, is delivering to us. And this is the number one reason to get under the authority of Christ, because when we do, he delivers hope. We have a future. Now, you start to think about it, the world doesn't deliver anything in terms of hope to us. But I don't know if you've heard, there's an election coming up uh, here in Ontario. And um, yeah, politicians would tell you that they're the ones who are going to deliver hope. 
So they make promise after promise after promise. And any of us have, who have been around, I don't really want to get into politics here today. I don't want to be partisan in any way. But I mean, I've been around long enough. I've voted in every election there is to vote on since I was allowed to do that. And, and, and um, I mean, I've just seen a few politicians, you know what I'm saying? Try to deliver hope and then, you know, not deliver I mean, I've kind of seen that. And, and I, so we see that pattern going over and over again. And again, I don't want to be super political, but if you're trying to decide who you're going to vote for, it's really not about who's going to deliver the most good slash hope to you. It's really, I need to vote for the person who's going to do the least amount of damage. <laughs> Uncomfortable laughter rippled through the crowd. Because none of them can deliver the hope that we're talking about. Certainly nothing even close to what Jesus is promising to us here. And then I thought about, you know, sometimes we think, well, you know, if we could just educate people, if we could just teach them something, you know, education is going to be hope, the hope that we have. And, you know, education fails on this point. It's certainly important to have an education and to listen to our teachers and all of that. But um, in the, for, for example, for example, in the lead up to Victoria Day long weekend last week, the five days leading up to it, the OPP went on a blitz throughout the province of Ontario. And they laid, listen to this, in the five days before the long weekend, they laid 11,000 charges under the Highway Traffic Act. 11,000 in the five days leading up to the long weekend. Now, you're, once you hear what some of these are, do you wanna hear what they are? Yeah. yeah, do you wanna hear what they are? Okay, none of them, none of them are, are anything we're unaware of. They're not obscure charges because we've been educated throughout our lives that speeding, for example, is wrong. Of the 11,000 charges, listen, uh, 10,600 of them were for speeding. Do we know that speeding is wrong? Do we know that speeding? We know. And here's the other thing we know. This isn't just run-of-the-mill speeding because we know there's no OPP in the province that's pulling you over for 20 over. Correct? Okay, so, so this is about people who are doing more than 20 kilometers an hour over the limit. And in fact, among the 10,600 that were pulled over for speeding, 175 of them were going over 50 kilometers an hour, which is speed racing, which means they lose their license in their car. Is it because people don't know it's wrong? Is it because we haven't been educating them? Well, I go on because there's more charges here. Listen, seven... 726 seatbelt charges in that five days. Seven, do, are people unaware? Is it because of lack of education? I mean, I remember when I was a kid, I mean, we didn't have seatbelt laws. I mean, there were seatbelts hanging there in the car, you know, but we didn't have laws. I mean, my parents owned a station wagon. That was just a place to throw the kids when you went on car trips. I slept everywhere we ever went. I have no recollection of any trips we ever took. I slept in the back. That was fun back in the day, also extremely dangerous because at any given moment, something stupid happens on the road. I'm out the back window. There's no doubt about it. So we all know seatbelts save lives. We know the slogans. 760 or 26. How about, how about, does everybody realize you shouldn't use your cell phone while you're driving? Does everybody know this? It's not an education problem. 424 distracted driving charges. By the way, they say distracted driving is even worse than impaired driving. Surely the education has gotten it through our heads that we shouldn't be dr drinking and driving. Surely we understand this. No. 
124 impaired charges in the five days leading up to the Victoria Day long weekend. I mean, that's before the drinking even starts. <laughs> all that to say, first of all, there's obviously a public service announcement in all of that, so listen to that part of it for sure. Uh, but all of that to say, um, education isn't working. I mean, it works to a measure, but there's some people that are just simply never going to get it. So that's not our hope. You might talk about religion. Is, is that our hope? Re religion in general, just any religion, just have a religion? Uh, too fractured, too polarized, that's not the answer. And then what about within myself? I'm going to make the hope work within myself. I, I have dreams. I have aspirations. I, I, I can make this happen for myself. But not even you can do that, and I don't mean to be super fatalistic about all of this, but at the end of the day, we're all going to fail, we're all going to die, there's not a person in the room for whom that is uh, not the end. And so even at the end, hope evaporates if your hope is in yourself. All that to say, listen, there's only one good news, and Jesus Christ is the one proclaiming it, and the only hope we have is in Him. So, so he's preaching. This is verse one. Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel. Those are the same thing, teaching the people, preaching the gospel. He's telling them the gospel is the good news. And if we want to lock down exactly what we mean by the gospel, here's just something. It's the forgiveness of sins that gives us access to God. That's the good news because we are sinful. We have been separated from God. The good news is that can be overcome. We can have the forgiveness of sins and we can be back into relationship with God, having access to him. That's the gospel. Now, as a, as a note to the passage that we're in right now, that forgiveness of sins can happen outside of the temple. Now, we're going to come back to that point. It's very important in terms of our context here. It didn't have to happen in the temple. That's why the religious leaders were so upset with Jesus. But, but listen, there's no gospel, the good news, there's no gospel if there's no crisis of sin. There's no gospel if there's no understanding of the severed relationship with God, and there's no gospel, I'm going to use a big word right now, there's no gospel if we don't lean upon the propitiation of Christ, 1 John 2, 2. That is to say, the substitutionary atonement of Christ. That is to say, Jesus must give his life in our place. He died, so I don't have to. Listen, there's no gospel unless you have all three parts of that. And this is an important question in light of what happened just a week ago. How many people here uh, watched the royal wedding? You watched the royal wedding, okay? Several of you. How many people, though you didn't watch the royal wedding, you heard about the sermon that Bishop Michael uh, Curry preached at the wedding? It, was, it became like a big deal. First of all, uh, apparently about 2 billion people watched the wedding. And then in the midst of it, uh, Bishop Michael Curry, who's an Episcopal uh, bishop from the United States, he uh, preached this 13-minute sermon that everyone was talking about. Isn't it amazing, they said, that the gospel was preached at the royal wedding. Now, I listened to it because I was intrigued to hear what was going on, and Twitter was all abuzz with it. And so I listened to it, and I was thinking to myself, now, is this really the gospel. 
Now, I'm asking followers of Christ now, people who say they love the Word of God, let's be discerning about this, and let's discern whether or not this truly is the gospel. And by the way, I'll say this as, a, as kind of a preamble to what I'm going to say next. If CNN likes the sermon... <laughs> I mean, they posted the sermon. They, they posted a transcript of the sermon. Listen, if, if Hollywood stars are saying, that was a wonderful sermon, I think it's the followers of Christ and people who love the word of God, that might be like a warning bell to us that maybe this is not exactly and precisely the gospel. Now, here's what I'll say about Michael Curry's message. I will say this. It was a nice sermon about love-ish. That's what I'll say about it. It was a nice sermon about love-ish. And the reason why I put the ish on the end of that is because he didn't actually ever define love in the sermon. Now, we would talk about love in terms of self-sacrifice. We would talk about it in terms of that Greek word agape type love, which is you before me and, and um, it's unconditional love. It's just love that I give you even if it's not returned. That's, that's the best kind, deepest kind. It's the kind of love that God has shown to us. Now, one of the challenges with the bishop's message was this, that while he talked about love, he didn't define it in terms of this self-sacrificing love and what we might have to give to express this love. And then further, the passage that he used to talk about love, do you remember what book he pulled it from? Anybody remember? Song of Solomon. Okay, well, that, the kind of love that's being talked about in Song of Solomon, I've never done a series on this, I'm a bit afraid to, is because it's, it, listen, it's not, it's, it's romantic, physical love is what he's talking about. Okay, that's the kind of love, in, so he's using this romantic love poem type love to talk about the kind of love we have to have for one another. We won't talk about how inappropriate that is, but, but it's not the kind of Christian love that we talk about from the New Testament. It's good love. God created it. It's awesome in its right context. But, but it's... So, so at best, this was a muddled sermon about love without great definitions and not mentioning at all the very essence of the gospel, which is we're sinners, we're separated from God, and, and we need that to be reconciled by Jesus Christ. So when the bishop is talking about the power of love, which he talked about repeatedly, the power of love, I believe 100% that we are saved by the power of God's love. John 3.16 makes it super clear. For God so loved the world, he sent his one and only son that whoever believes in him, well, listen to all the elements of that. He sent his son to do what? To die on the cross for us because we couldn't save ourselves. There was no hope otherwise. And the only way you get that, it's not universally applied to everyone. The only way you get it is if you believe in him. That friends, is the gospel. And the bishop fell short of that. And so anyone can be saved by the power of love if you repent of your sins and you'll find forgiveness through Jesus Christ, through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Now, all of this brings us back to the central question we're talking about in this passage, which is the question of authority, the authority of Christ. And we chafe against this. And we've been chasing, chafing as human beings. We've been chafing against this from the very beginning. If you go all the way back to the book of Genesis, all the way back to the Garden of Eden, you lock down chapter 3, and you're going to see the problem that we've had with authority from the beginning. So this encounter that Jesus is having with this temple delegation over authority goes all the way back to the Garden, and it's going to relate to us 
In the Garden of Eden, of course, they were told, you can eat of any tree, just not this one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You can eat of anything else, enjoy the rest of the garden, just, just don't eat from this tree. Well, then the serpent shows up, and he and Eve have a little com- conversation. They're standing there right at the tree, and some of the things that the serpent is saying is making sense to her. And, and here's the thing that the serpent says to her about this in very, very devastating words. Did God really say? Did God say? I mean, he's challenging the authority of God over her life. He's preaching to Eve individual autonomy, personal autonomy. And so the whole thing unravels, of course. Eve uh, takes of it. She gives it to Adam. He eats of it. Now they, the, the guilt floods in. We shouldn't have done that. They're fearful. They're ashamed. They, they realize they're naked. They go and fashion some makeshift clothing for themselves, some coverings. Well, God shows up. He's in the garden and kind of looking for them. And they finally kind of meet up. And he notices that they're covered. And what's the deal? He says to them, who told you you're naked? In other words, God's saying to them, whose authority did you place yourself under other than me? It's so sad in that moment that everything fell apart for them, of course, but we see that this was really what's happening in the temple, what happened in the gardens, really a battle over authority. It's Satan v. God. And the whole battle is played out in, in the minds and in the hearts of human beings. And so then when you, when you translate that down into kind of like right now and my life, I realize that this is a battle every single day. That every morning I need to wake up and open my eyes and make a decision in that very moment today. I will be under the authority of Christ. It's not, a good, it's not good enough that you did it at the moment you were converted. Yes, I gave my life to Jesus and I'm under his authority. And I did that so many years ago. I mean, I'm just feeling like I'm tempted to get out from underneath the authority of Christ every single day. The fact that maybe I rededicated myself or I prayed that prayer last Tuesday. Well, that was great for Tuesday, but then Wednesday came with its unique set of temptations. Now I'm all the way to Sunday and I'm hearing the word of God again. And I, once again, I need to put myself under the authority of Christ from this moment right now, God, it is my resolve. I'm going to live under your authority. Because sadly, we use the same phrasing that Satan used with Eve as we face temptations. God really say that? Did God really say that? And we question his word and we question his authority in our lives. Will I live under the authority of Christ today or not? And therefore, will I have hope? That's the blessing that God stands ready to pour out if we would receive it and tuck under his authority. All right, that's the first one. Ready for a second? When I place myself under the authority of Christ, I also have not just hope, but certainty. Certainty. Because Jesus is not subject to human scrutiny. 
I mean, people think that they can question God and challenge him, but God does not bow to human beings. So Jesus is here. He's he's preaching the gospel. Verse 1 continues, the chief priests, the scribes with the elders. Again, this is an official temple delegation that's sent to him. They came up and they said to him, tell us by what authority you do these things or who it is that gave you this authority. And the demand here, the grammatical construction, is all, it's, it's, it's emphatic. They want to know. They're demanding an answer. They mean business. They actually ask it, if you notice in the verse, they ask it twice to make sure he got it. And, and Jesus wasn't the, the last one to kind of face this kind of scrutiny. In fact, if you, if you fast forward and after the resurrection and the ascension and Jesus, you know, sent the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit came upon the apostles and, and the first followers of Christ then in this new church, they're off in Jerusalem, they're everywhere, they're preaching the gospel. Peter and John are off preaching the gospel. They, they go in, into, the, into the temple one day and uh, there's a man sitting there, he's begging, he's lame. And, and um, he's looking for some money. Peter says, I don't have any money, but what I have, I'll give you. And, and he, he, in the power of the Holy Spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, he heals the man. Well, of course, the religious leaders, the same ones that questioned Jesus, now haul them up in front of the Jewish council to say to them the very same question. Acts, this is all in Acts chapter 4, verse 7. They say to them, by what power or by what name did you do this? I mean, they still don't have it. They, they don't get it. And they have no other play. And you, you have to be thinking, what exactly is their end game? What are they going after? And we saw it back in chapter 19, verse 47. They're seeking to destroy him. In Acts chapter 4, they're seeking. They thought it was all done when they crucified Jesus. And they didn't realize he was going to rise from the dead. And his followers are going to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. So by Acts chapter 4, they're seeking to destroy the followers of Jesus. They want the whole thing to come to an end. Why? What was he doing that was was so upsetting to them? Well, it it really comes down to these things. Look at uh, verse 2. Tell us by what authority you do these things. What are these things? What are the things that he was doing? Well, first of all, in the close context, we looked at it last week, was the cleansing of the temple. So Jesus goes in, he sees these merchants there, these money changers, whatever was going on there, it wasn't good. Jesus called the place a den of robbers because they were there. I mean, they're exchanging money for temple currency, probably ripping people off. They're selling animals. So your animal's not good enough, buy this one. I mean, a lot of things are going on there that aren't great. They're taking up space. It was supposed to be for prayer for the Gentiles. Whatever was going on, Jesus goes in and uh, cleans house, establishes his authority over the temple. By what authority do you do these things? By what authority do you cleanse the temple like that? You can go back earlier in the gospel, in fact, in Luke chapter 5. And Jesus, like, says to somebody, your sins are forgiven. And they're all up in arms about that. And Jesus said, I, just, I did this so that you would know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. The next chapter, and in chapter 13, chapter 6 and chapter 13, he does two healings, each of them on the Sabbath day, which the religious leaders were all pretty incensed about. 
And so all of these things are the things that they're thinking about. Who, who said you could cleanse the temple? Whose authority uh, is it that, that you forgive sin? Under whose authority are you healing people on the Sabbath day? So they have a complete list of charges to bring against him. And all the way along, we've seen this throughout Luke's gospel, Jesus is provoking this crisis. He's demonstrating his authority as the son of God. And of course, the religious leaders, they didn't like it at all. Now, I love this part. I love this part of the message where we get to just explain things and that's interesting and we tie it to that and we all feel a little bit more knowledgeable about Luke's gospel, but that's not our goal here, is it? I mean, it's great to kind of walk away. I just I never thought about that before. And it's great to kind of fill our knowledge base, but this is the point in this point where we transition to how does this apply to my life? So how many people are eager right now to hear how this applies to their life? Because it's, I mean, this is a tough point. God is not subject to human scrutiny, including mine. Because we ask the same question. Under whose authority, God, do you tell me to do this? We challenge God repeatedly when, when difficult situations are put in front of us, when, when temptations come our way. We ask the same question of God when the Holy Spirit is pressing us. When we're sitting in a sermon and we hear something we know relates to some area of our lives or we're reading some Christian book or we've heard some other preacher or some friend who knows the scripture is bringing a challenge to us. By whose authority do you challenge me in this way? And in those moments, we very often decide that we're going to do it our own way because nobody tells me what to do. I have personal autonomy. By what authority, God, do you tell me that I can't have sex before marriage? By what authority do you tell me that I can't marry an unbeliever? He's such a nice guy. By what authority do you tell me that I can't drink and get, and get drunk or get high? By what authority do you tell me that I have to use my gifts to serve other people, that I can't just sit on the sidelines? By what authority do you tell me that I have to love unconditionally? By what authority do you tell me I have to forgive that person? Don't you know how much they hurt me? By what authority, God, do you place demands on my life? By what authority do you call me to holiness? The question hangs in the air for all of us. Am I under his authority in all matters of life and godliness? So the question is there from these temple leaders and Jesus does respond to them in verses 3 to 7. We'll look at that in the next point, but look to the conclusion of the matter because here we're talking about having certainty that comes from God, something the world absolutely cannot provide for us. I mean, there's nothing certain for us. I mean, none of us in this room is even certain that we'll be here next week for worship. 
Okay? We can't be certain about anything. When we're talking about certainty, we're talking about God not being, Christ not being subject to human scrutiny. And so he says in verse 8, after these temple leaders respond to him, Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. I mean, this is the mic drop moment, right? And the implication of his reply was that he was preaching and healing with the authority that comes from God in heaven. After his baptism and then his, his temptation in the desert, at the outset of his public ministry, uh, Luke records for us in, in Luke 4.14 that he returned in the power of the Holy Spirit. He had the authority of God in his life. After he did kind of his first little bit of teaching, and the people began to hang on his words, and Luke 4.32 tells us that they were astonished at his teaching. Why? Because his word possessed authority. They just had never heard a preacher or a prophet like this and because they didn't realize in the moment that this was actually God preaching to them and all the authority of God was in him. His authority came from the Father through the Spirit and because it does, listen, we can be certain of everything that God prescribes to us in his word. Jesus would not submit himself to their line of questions. He would establish his preeminent authority over this world and over us. And listen, here's the thing. We just need to get under it. And when we get under the authority of God, no matter how difficult that road may be, no matter what, what hard decisions might need to be made, what things we might need to resist or walk away from, as soon as we do that, such a flood of certainty comes into our lives that we've made the right decision, we've made the right choice, and things like our identity becomes secure and our certainty about the future and where we're going and our purpose in life all gets locked into place with great certainty because we tucked ourselves under the authority of Christ. All right, here's the final one. When I place myself under the authority of Christ, I have understanding because he knows, he knows all there is to know. Now, before that verse eight mic drop a moment in verses three and four, Jesus answered them. But, you know, this is Jesus' way of answering things, right? So it's not really an answer because Jesus always answers with a, with a question, right? This is the way he, he does this. Uh, not always, but with those who challenge him for sure. So Jesus answered them, I will also ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Now he's linking himself to John the Baptist very intentionally. A couple things that John had, had preached were so critical because John actually preached the gospel. And so Jesus linking to him is linking himself with that message. In fact, in Luke 3, 3, um, John proclaimed a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, that's way clearer than anything Michael Curry said. That's the gospel. And then Jesus said this himself. Um, sorry, John the Baptist said this of Jesus a little bit later in Luke 3. He who is mightier than I is coming. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. 
So this is why Jesus is linking to the one who was sent as the precursor to him to prepare the way for him. Jesus is identifying with him because John was all about the gospel and John was all about Jesus and Jesus being mightier than him. And so it was, it was obvious to the people that John was a prophet who was sent from God. And now the temple delegation has a problem with Jesus posing this particular question to them. And so they, you know, they got into a little clutch. This is what makes me think that this temple delegation were actually Baptists because they kind of formed a committee meeting at this moment, right? So they pulled together a little committee. They have a little bit of a discussion here. And, and here's, they're weighing out the options now. We could answer this or we could answer this. Verse 5, if we say that John the Baptist was from heaven, his authority came from him, he will say, why didn't you believe him? Why didn't you get down to the Jordan River? Why didn't you get baptized by him if his message was legit and it was sent from God? Verse six, but if we say, on the other hand, from man, all the people are gonna stone us to death for they're convinced that John was a prophet. To say his authority was simply in himself, that it was human-derived authority would set off a firestorm because the people considered him to be a prophet. So nobody's disputing this. The credentials of John are not in dispute except by these religious leaders. Now here's, if you want to interpret the scriptures with just one simple picture, here's what the religious leaders, these temple leaders had done to themselves. They had painted themselves into a corner. These priests, these elders, these scribes are now painted into a corner by their question and by the question that Jesus has asked them. They have no way out. And so often we're going to do this with God when we start questioning his authority in our lives. We're going to paint ourselves into a corner and there's going to be no way out of it. We're not going to outsmart God. He knows everything there is to know. And we gain understanding when instead of doing this, listen, we open ourselves up to be under the authority of God. And so the chief priests, the scribes with the elders, they're in this a difficult position. They have no answer for him. So here's their conclusion, verse 7. They answered that they did not know where it came from, where the authority came from for John the Baptist. They claim ignorance. They claim ignorance. But really, they do know, and they're just being pragmatic. And here's the thing. There's very few people here in the room who don't understand what the demands of holiness are. You, you, you know. As a follower of Christ, I'm obligated to live in a certain way for Christ. The scriptures tell me that. It's not that we don't know. There's very little ignorance in the room. There's a lot of challenging of God's authority. These religious leaders, they weren't ignorant. They knew exactly what they were doing. They knew exactly that John's message was on point. They're only giving this answer for pragmatic reasons because they're, they're afraid of the people. In this moment, they're being politicians rather than being leaders. And, there, and there's a difference. They know what they're doing. Their claim to ignorance is insincere, driven by fear. And so all of this comes right back to the main question, who is in charge? Who has the authority? And if they accept what Jesus is preaching and they accept what John had preached, what it really means for them is that their authority is going to come to an end. I said I would come back to this point, but... The whole, the whole forgiveness business was in their control. 
People wouldn't feel forgiven unless they actually went to the temple, brought a sacrifice, made an offering, and went through the process of what the temple was doing. So they had a corner on the market with regard to forgiveness. And John and Jesus were both preaching. Now, the way you get forgiveness is simple. Listen, repentance. Tell God it was wrong and turn from it. And so the religious leaders, these temple leaders, they feel threatened by this. But by rejecting John and rejecting Jesus, what they didn't realize is they were actually rejecting their God and his word and his will and his purposes as it was all told them. And Jesus could ask them this with confidence because you know, he was God and he knew all things. And when we submit to his authority, we clear the way for him to speak into our lives with clarity. Whatever you give me to do, God, no matter how hard it's going to be, I'm going to do it. I'm in. And I'm going to trust you that you understand all things. You know the beginning from the end, and whatever you're asking me to do, I know that that's going to result in something good because that's your heart for me. Obviously, that's an awesome blessing that we should be laying our hands on. So let me, let me just refer to one other encounter that Jesus had in the gospel, and then we'll bring this in for a landing. And because this reminded me, as I was thinking about authority here in this passage, you go back to chapter 7, Luke's gospel, and Jesus has this encounter with a Roman centurion. So he's a Roman officer uh, in, the, in the Roman army, which is the occupying army of Israel. And this centurion had been really kind and generous toward the Jewish people who lived in the town that he was located in. Well, the centurion's servant got ill, and a delegation from the synagogue went to see Jesus. And they said, this man is very kind. He actually built our synagogue for us. His servant is ill. Would you come and heal him? So Jesus was making his way to the centurion's place and the centurion meets him halfway. And Luke chapter seven actually records the conversation for us. And the centurion said to Jesus, Lord, do not trouble yourself for I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. That's awesome humility. And humility obviously is, is at the root of our ability to get under the authority of Christ. He went on to say, I did not presume to come to you. So I knew you were a healer, but I didn't come to you. Listen, these other people went on my behalf. And then what he says next is so shocking. He says, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under, what's the word? Authority. He said, I, I, I have soldiers under me. I say to one, go, and he goes. I say to another, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do it, and he does it. I mean, he understood the authority of God. He was tucked under it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him, he said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. The measure of a person's faith was, is their understanding of authority. Jesus healed that man's servant. Good things came into his life because he was tucked under the authority of God. 
and all the good things that God wants to give you, hope, certainty, understanding among them, so many good things that God wants to give to you, they come when you get under his authority. You do exactly what he's laid out for you to do. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father, whenever I uh, preach a message like this, I'm, I'm super aware uh, that a temptation in this very area will come into my life almost immediately. So I'm anticipating in the coming hours and days that uh, challenges to your authority in my life are going to come hard and fast. It's going to come from my own flesh. It's going to come from the devil. It's going to come from this world, wherever it comes from, Father. I want to be ready for it, and I want to be resolved to ignore those voices that are questioning you. Did God really say? And I want to be tucked under your authority and listen to your word and do what it says. And Father, that's going to come for me. I just really believe it's going to be the story for everyone in this room this week. We're going to face this temptation. And so, Father, give us your Holy Spirit to resist temptation and to be resolved to live fully for you as your sons and daughters. Thank you for all of the good things you pour into our life as a result. Thank you for the hope, for the certainty, and for the understanding that we can have through Christ. And we pray in his strong name. Amen.